You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. Sometimes I'll be walking around the house, I'll look at Joanne, and I'll say, I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. And she'll say, no, you aren't. And she's right. Because I'm not. Because the king of rock is with me today. He's Mr. DMC, a.k.a. Daryl McDaniels. How you doing today, man? What's happening? Thank you for having me in the place to be on Cooper Talk. So, I got to talk to you. I, well, I want to talk about your book, and it's great that you're talking about bullying and stuff like that, because we all I went through it, too, because I have a lazy eye, so I know what happens when we're younger. But how how did you become get the moniker King of Rock? How'd that come about? Oh, that's a great question. Um, when I started writing my raps, everybody was always defined by these certain terms. And then as competitive as hip-hop was in the beginning, you know, it was this group, I got better beats than you, my DJ's better than you, I got better raps than you. I got to a point where I didn't want to just limit myself to being the king of rap or hip-hop. So in my imagination, when I was writing my rhymes, even before I ever thought about making records, I was pretending to be the rapper or the MC that was going to put the fear of God into Elvis Presley, Mick Jagger, and all the rock star guys. So it was a thing of me where we sampled a lot of James Brown, we sampled a lot of funk, we sampled a lot of R&B, we sampled a lot of disco, but people tend to forget that we utilize a lot of rock songs as breakbeats. So when I got into hip hop, I always try to be, I always try to do something different than everybody else. So when everybody else was busy trying to defend um, when everybody else was busy fighting for who's the king of hip-hop and rap, I went over their heads as a little kid and had a bigger vision to be um, the king of rock because I come from an era of 70s rock radio of being my inspiration. So even though I did the rap hip-hop thing, if I was going to be considered a recording artist, I had to be the king of rock because I grew up listening to the Stones and the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and groups like that. Well, it's funny because we're the same age, and, and you know we think about our how our music has changed. I mean, when we were yes. younger, and I remember sitting in the car and listening to AM, like Sweet Caroline by a Neil yes. Diamond, and then yes, and yeah, and then luckily I had an older brother, and when my older brother sat there and came along, you know, when he started listening to music, I remember listening to like. Chicago and, and, you know, all that stuff. Yes. And it's great. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, it really influenced. And I think we grew up in a generation where we had so much great music and it yep. was always around. Yep. And that's why people get it twisted when they start saying, I must be getting old because I don't like the stage music. No. When we were younger kids, we had higher expectations. We also had superb, excellent um, well done music, whether it was Jim Croce, Harry Chapin, Joni Mitchell, whether it was Led Zeppelin, whether it was Proco Harum, whether it was Janis Joplin. We had all of this really, really, really good music, good sounds, good content and everything. So it came we come from a place where we put quality over quantity. And like I said, when I was a, a younger kid, I really didn't have a music that defined me because my mother and father, you know, Al Green, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, my moms and pops was cool. That was their music. I was still a kid into my comic books, into my TV shows, you know, or the Godzilla black and white films, the Boris Karloff, Bella Lugosi, uh, Woody Woodpecker, the Jetsons, the Flintstones. After school, it was the Brady Bunch and the Adams Family and the Munsters. That was my era. So as a little kid, the only music that I could define with was folk rock in 70s um rock and roll on the radio because outside of the rock star rock songs they sung a lot of the artists whether it was Neil Young or John Fogarty they said stuff that I could relate to like presidents and government and they talked about social issues and everyday things that I could relate to as opposed to what Marvin Gaye outside of um, um, what's going on was singing about so we come from the same era where you know whether it was Neil Diamond 
whether it was Elton John, Jim Croce, Harry Chapin, or even the Beatles doing something as simple as in the town where I was born. <laughs> all of these songs was on the radio. And all of those songs were very, uh, they resonated with me because it was storytelling. And also the superb diversity of, of harmonicas and rock guitars and what Dylan was doing. It was like a kaleidoscope of emotions. Now, did you ever, did you, this is just something I thought about when you were talking about this. Did you ever like get to stay up late and watch Midnight Special or Don Kirshner's rock I've concert? I never, no, I've all, I was, my mother had my butt in bed. But <laughs> getting up the next day, hearing everybody talk about it, it's the thing that made it great to me because it was a mystery. You know what I'm saying? Everybody, did you say, I was never able to stay up past 11 o'clock. It was over. It was like, I've, I've missed that so much. But the excitement was not knowing what happened, but it was even enjoyable to hear about it. Now, I want to talk about your great career. And part of your career is your new book, Daryl's Dream. Tell me about tell me about this book and tell me how it started. And then I want to later talk about how you talk to a lot of kids and you go to schools. But how did the book come about? It wasn't part of the plan at all. Doing a children's book is not was not part of the plan. Um, throughout my career, I've always created stuff that would inspire, motivate, educate, and entertain. But even more importantly, as dynamic as I was, when people saw me, they didn't see celebrity. They learned. They always learned something about themselves. So the book basically came about because. Y'all know me for the last 37, 38 years, almost 40 years, from when I got out of high school, I went to St. John's University, I hook up with Run and Jay, we walk this way with Aerosmith in our Adidas, telling the world how tricky it is. So y'all know me from high school to St. John's to Run DMC to adulthood. But if you remember, Steve, when I said my first rap, I'm DMC, in the place to be, I go to St. John's University. Since kindergarten, I acquired the knowledge. And after 12th grade, I went straight to college. I started to realize that I can tell stories about stuff I haven't talked about yet. I can talk about what was it like when DMC was young in kindergarten, in first grade, in second grade, and third grade. And that revelation came about because, like you just said, I started talking out at high, I started speaking at high schools. The high schools would go, you need to take this to the middle schools. I would go to the middle schools and the educators would be like, you need to take this to the elementary schools. So the exact same thing, the way I speak to you, the way I spoke at high schools and middle schools, I go in front of the kindergartners and the sixth graders. And it's basically, yo, what's up, y'all? My name is Daryl McDaniels. I grew up in Hollis, Queens, New York. I got teased, bullied, and picked on. I love comic books. And, you know, I talk about my mother, my father, going to Catholic school, everything that led me all the way up to, you know, rock and roll and hip-hop and being the first rapper to do all of these things. And I started to realize I started to resonate with the kids because most of the kids might have heard of me because I've been around so long that grandmothers and grandfathers know who I am. So those kids, they might hear their mothers and fathers playing Run DMC and the BCs and all of that. So now they're looking at this is the man that my mother and father and grandmother and grandfather think is so great. But I noticed I got a big connection with them because when I open up for Q&A with these kids, you know, they're not the kids that's going to ask like the high school kids, do you know Cardi B? Do you know Eminem? Do you know Beyonce? They start asking questions about how did they hear everything I say. How did it feel when you got teased, bullied, and picked on? How did it feel when you found out you was adopted? How did you feel about being a foster kid? How did you feel about when your mother and father said you couldn't stay up late to watch the movie at 10 o'clock? So they have all of these feelings and these emotions that nobody really put in, in in a scenario that they can relate to. So I said the same way I always did Son of Bifred, Christmas time in Hollis Greens and DMC in a place to be. I wear my glasses so I can see. What if I took Daryl McDaniels when he was in third grade and put it in their environment? Our environment is our family environment, our friends environment, and our workplace. Their environment is exactly the same except it's their home, their backyard, their block, neighborhood, 
classroom and schoolyard. So everything that I did musically, um, I was encouraged by a couple of the teachers whose schools I spoke at. It was like, DMC, Daryl, you should do a book. And I was like, no, I don't want to do a book. But you could reach so many kids with this message without having to be there. Put little young DMC there so that the kids could see themselves in the bullying situation. The kids could see themselves, you know, to this day, as grown-ups, we get anxiety, we get afraid, we get confused. We said, so I, w- I wanted to speak to the kids in a scenario, in a way, in, in their environment, so they, that they can understand these feelings and thoughts that they, it's okay to have. And to, um, um, secondly, to do two things. To show them they're perfect just the way they are. Your red hair, your freckles, your, your ears, you know, you don't got to wear your Air Jordans and, and Adidas to be cool like Run DMC. You can be who you are. And, and on the other hand, the characteristics that make you who you are, you can be and do anything that there is that you want to do, which is what happens to young DMC in this book. Now, how did you handle getting bullied? Like me, I, I became funny. And years later, I did stand-up comedy. That was my thing to get out of bully because if you made them laugh they'd leave you alone but would you at that because you said you were drawing a lot would you draw yes. a character of someone or would you or would you rap to him how did you as little daryl how did you handle bu- getting when you got bullied well it, it's funny the, the 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 actual thing that i thought was mine alone was actually the thing that eventually um delivered me or allowed me to fit in to reduce the bullying. Um, what I would do was I would sink away into my comic books and into my drawing pad, you know what I'm saying, to deal with those emotions. Like instead of, you know, punching the guy back, instead of, you know, shooting the spitball back at them, I would take that energy and I would direct it into my creativity. And then eventually what happened I mean, it's funny for me. I got teased and bullied because I wore glasses. Hey, four eyes. You remember that? Hey, binoculars. Hey, telescope. All of that. You know, the, the kids, you know, if, if they wouldn't break your glasses, they would hide your glasses from you. You know, we'll go like this. Go blind, stuff. blind man. Yeah, yes. But yes, all, yes, all of that. So I would go through that. But eventually what started happening was the thing that I thought wasn't cool as the athletic kids or the kids that you know had a reputation for being the it ones and stuff like that what happened to me was once the whole classroom got acknowledgement or the schoolyard got acknowledgement that okay i'm corny because i wear glasses i'm corny because i'm on the honor roll and i'm really corny because all i do is read comic books but then something amazing happened to me those same bullies when it was time to give in your project would come to me, now all of a sudden you my friend. Excuse me, Daryl, can you do the cover for my project? <laughs> so I started doing the covers. I started doing the covers for um I started doing the covers for the kids that was bullying me. And what would happen was when I'm doing this bully's cover, he would turn to the other class and say, Nobody mess with Daryl. <laughs> so my gift of drawing was actually the thing that gave me a reputation in the school. And it wasn't until everybody found out that, oh, Daryl draws, all of a sudden out the woodwork, once it was announced that Daryl's in the comic books and he draws, now I'm starting to get a little protection from the bullies. Now Craig Henry speaks up out of nowhere. Daryl, you draw? He was hiding his gift too. Me too. So now I got another guy in my classroom, Craig Henry. Then once me and Craig Henry started knowing we had something in common, Michael Starks started speaking up. And then Deborah Hamilton started speaking up. So I never was able to get back at the bullies, but my talent was also my protector, which which garnered me respect because now all eyes is on me because I got this gift. Now the bully don't want to mess with me no more because he know next month when the project is due, who you got to come to. <laughs> now, at a young age, did you think you were going to go into a cartooning and comic book life? Or, I mean, how did you end up falling into and becoming such an iconic person in the rap hip-hop world? Right. I had no, I had no idea I was going to be in the entertainment business. I was a shy kid. 
that only was got I got straight A's and was on the honor roll and I loved comic books. That's all that I had going for me. And a good imagination, you know what I'm saying? I played basketball with the other kids, you know, I was okay, but I wasn't like, you know, I didn't become Mark Jackson. You know, Mark Jackson grew up in my neighborhood. He went to St. John's and went on to be rookie of the year playing with the New York Knicks. So I, w- I wasn't that kid. My um, my um, success came through everything I was pretending to be. Um, when hip hop came over the bridge from the Bronx in '78, and I first realized it, I was just writing rhymes not to make records. Not to have a reputation in the neighborhood, not to be the best performer, to be the best MC or whatever. Um, Hip hop for me was like, oh shoot, you can tell stories over music about who you are. So now I can write about my glasses. Now I can write about drawing. Now I can write about my family. Um, Hip hop, rock and roll set me up to learn. Um, you know, from Fogarty and the Beatles and Harry Chapin, Joan Jett and Jim Croce, how to write those songs. You know, I, I was a big fan of In the Town Where I Was Born, Lived a Man. So it was all storytelling to me, which was in the comic books and the books that I was reading as a kid. Hip hop now gives me the ability, I can't sing like the guys I idolized on 70s radio here on AM and FM. 77 WABC. I can't, but I can tell stories that I've been writing in my mind and imagination. So I just started writing rhymes about who Daryl was for me. It wasn't until Joseph Simmons, whose brother at the time before rap music was a business, was already in the business of hip hop, of promoting live parties and performances and running around to every label trying to get Curtis Blow signed to the major record deal. So in the explosion of Rapper's Delight finally getting recorded, all of the stuff that I had been doing from 78 to 1982 was just preparation. I was pretending to be Grandmaster Flash in the Furious Five. I was pretending to be Curtis Blow, not knowing that I was actually going to wind up being what they were doing anyway. Now, how did you meet the other guys in Run DMC? How did that, how was that, was it just from hanging out at the, you know, in the neighborhood or club yeah. scene, or how did you guys meet? We all lived in, on Hollis Avenue, five blocks from each other. So we went to the same schools. We played at the same PAL um, night center. We went to the same day camps. You know what I'm saying? So we all just lived in the same neighborhood. And um, the park, uh, the backyards, the block parties, and the cookouts was our environment. We went to the same candy stores to get our comic books. We went to the same um, pizza shops to get our pizza. We went to the same school. So we were just two, three individuals who grew up in the same neighborhood who at the time didn't know we had uh, uh, something in common with this DJ MC rap thing. So, you know, it wasn't until Run came over my house to play basketball that he saw that I didn't tell him I was writing rhymes. He discovered my rhyme book because it was laying right there on the table when we was hanging out after we played basketball. And he just picked it up and he said, yo, I do this too. And my brother's Russell Simmons. And, oh, cool. So now we got something else in common other than basketball. He was looking at it as an occupation and a career opportunity. For me, it was just something I did in my spare time. The same way I played, put my favorite blanket on my neck and ran through the house, I'm Batman and I'm Superman, was the same way I was writing my rhymes. I'm I'm not going to be like Grandmaster Flash in them, but I'm just pretending. It was make-believe. The same way I pretended I was G.I. Joe. <laughs> you know, the same way I rode my bike and jumped over a bunch of bricks saying I was Eva Knievel. For me, it was all, all, all make-believe. I had no idea that it was going to come true. Well, how does it start coming true? Because as you said, it's mm-hmm. it's new. You're, you guys are young. When does it start formulating? And you sit there and go, "Well, hey, wait a second, man. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I think I got something here." I didn't realize that I was really doing it till about '86, until walked this way. But how it formulated and came together. Um, Run was going to make. Run was a solo artist at first. So Russell Run's brother was managing Curtis Blow, Houdini, 
uh, Jimmy Spicer and a bunch of other up-and-coming rappers in their early years before rappers alike. So Russell got Curtis Blow signed to a major record deal with Mercury Records. So that was like huge. So Run was 12 to 15 years old. He's seeing the career opportunities. You know, it's, it's like if your brother's managing a rock band, eventually you're going to put your own band together. So Run originally was going to be a solo artist. When he got his opportunity to make his record, he remembered this guy five blocks from him, Daryl, had some good rhymes. So he told his brother, I don't want to be a solo. I want to put Daryl in the group. So all we did this summer that we graduated from high school was go make a demo, which was our first single. It's like that, and that's the way it is. And I think what was different about us, in the beginning, most hip-hop was about black ghetto music. It was talking about the social, economical, political issues that existed in places like the Bronx, New York, and Manhattan, and Watts. You know what I'm saying? It was very depressing. But us coming from a lower middle class suburban neighborhood, there was drugs and there was crime and poverty, but there was also playing in the sprinklers, going to the swimming pool, going to day camp. So hip hop gave us the permission to not just rhyme about the bad things. If I can rhyme about all these bad things and get you to pay attention, I can rhyme about the good things too and maybe you can relate to it. So on our first record, it's like that and about the way it is, we did a universal record talking about how the world was. So long story short, we put the song out. It was a hit. So it worked. Then the second single was um, Art um, Share Master J. We put that out, and it worked, right? We started getting radio play. We started getting attention. Then Russell Runs Brother, who was our manager, said, we're going to do something that nobody think could be done. We're going to make the first hip-hop album. And what's phenomenal about that is at the time, remember, everything was singles. All the groups, we was putting out the giant 45s or giant 33 singles. Everything was a single. We said, we're going to make an album. And the world said, okay, we don't really want to hear these hip-hop singles. There's no way you're going to do an album and anybody's going to care. So in 1984, we did the self-titled Run DMC, telling the world, this is Run. I'm DMC, our DJ's name, Jam Master J. This thing that we call this thing that we're doing is called hip hop. And we made the first hip-hop rock song on a song called Rock Box. We did that, and that was so good that it got us on MTV. So it basically was really MTV that helped with the success, not just of Run DMC, but with the success of hip-hop um, in general, because it now put hip-hop in everybody's living. Now, and once we, once we got in everybody's living room, sky's the limit. Now, you know, you said you had that love for classic rock when you were younger. Did that help right. when you put the albums together? Because, you know, I talk to people yep. now. They don't know what an album is. You know, they're like, what? You know, and right. I mean, I'm sure you're like me. When you got an album, you looked at it and you yes, read the liner notes and you did that. Was that something that really was important to you to make an album because you grew up with yep. that? Yep. The fact that we grew up with albums. Um a couple of years ago, we did. I did um, at the Boston Museum of Art. They, we did a conference. We did a seminar, and it was called the Lost Art of Album Covers. Album covers was an experience. It was visual. You held it in your hand. You looked at it, and then you could listen to it while you read every little thing in it. So that's a great question. We came from an era where you got to make an album. And you got to give people a total... We, we was trying to do what the Beatles did. We was trying to do what Parliament Funkadelic did. We was trying to do what um, 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 the Rolling Stones did. And we was also trying to do what Earth, Wind & Fire did. We come from an era where you made albums, complete um, storytelling, representative adventures. You know, the album was like a book. And each album was a, a chapter in, in these books. So we, we definitely, it wasn't a thing to be rich and famous for us. It was a thing to create albums the same way Stevie Wonder does it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that sincerity of our outlook on it is what made it so interesting and successful. Because the only thing that was really new about what we was doing is about the way we was doing it. But it was so respectfully um, 
and done with integrity because we had good teachers. Our teachers was everybody we sampled <laughs> and stole music from because we grew up, you know, watching those albums of Al Green and Marvin Gaye and Chicago and Boston and the Rolling Stones and the Eagles. You know, that whole era of phenomenal and parliament funkadelic. That's who we were artistically. What made it so different and interesting is the way we were doing it. We didn't have access to equipment, so we was using actual records that other people made to create new records. But we was able to create we was able to create content to fill an album because we have so much imagination, innovation, and creativity on our minds. Now, when you guys get on MTV, and you know, I've talked to so many musicians that, that MTV just changed their lives. You guys yeah. had a look. You had, you know, everyone knows what I mean. Everyone was dressing like DMC. I mean, you know, the white Jewish guys in my neighborhood were dressing like DMC. Everyone yeah. was dressing like DMC. What was it like when you guys started getting recognized because you had a certain look? When you went out, MTV just changed people's lives. How did it affect your life? Because you're a guy who grew up, you know, wearing glasses, drawing into mm -hmm. his own little world. What was it like when you started getting recognized, you know, in the early stage of your career? Was it scary for you? No, 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 no. It was like running around with your superhero costume on. We had no idea what was taking place. You know, we was making each records. In the beginning, the, the from an achievement standpoint, it was only to get your record played on the Friday or Saturday midnight hip-hop shows. Because remember, it wasn't on 24-7. So it wasn't a visual thing. It was a thing to get the music heard. Now, the music is so new. What is this? You know, these guys are taking my favorite song and making a whole new song out of it. They're rhyming about all of these different things. You know, we started out with the message, and we started out with songs of inspiration. Then it went from we were just talking about our sneakers and our mothers and fathers and what we was eating and everything. Those little, um, those contextual, conceptual um, um compartments of what we was doing you know um, it's like you said the jewish people can relate to us the people in other states can relate to us but it didn't really start having um an impact until because remember outside of the album covers and outside of the videos when people saw you in person it, it was like the video and the album covers was the comic book and the tv show or the movie but then to see us, actually, it was like, what I'm trying to say is, I felt like Batman never having a chance to be Bruce Wayne again. Because we was walking around in our Batman costumes. So people started to recognize, oh, those are the guys with the tracksuits. And the, hey, that's the guy with the glasses. You know, in, 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 in early, early on, sometimes I would have to take off my hat, my glasses, just to get into the supermarket and get out. Because if I walked in there, well, you know, if I walked in there as Tarot, it was over for me. So I had to not be DMC and become Daryl McDaniel. So to describe it, it was like, imagine Batman walking around, and everybody now know Batman is Bruce Wayne, but this makes no sense to go back to the Bruce Wayne look. You might as well just stay Batman. No. So we, we were people's heroes walking around in full costume. <laughs> I got to ask you, I love the King of Rock video. And uh, Bud Melman's in it, Larry Bud Melman's in the beginning. Shout out to Larry Bud Melman, and, uh, yes. What was it like shooting videos for you guys? You know, all of a sudden, you you know, some people loved them, some people hated them. I'm, guess, I'm guessing right. you liked them because you liked playing make-believe as a kid. But what was yes. it like when you would shoot a video? Were you nervous in front of the camera or did you just flow natural? No, it was flow natural because we, we, all we had to do was be who we were. So it, it, it made it kind of easy. And if I had to describe it, like I said, we grew up watching the Mike Douglas show. We grew up watching the Flip Wilson show. We grew up watching Hee Haw. We grew up watching um, 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 David Brenner's show and, 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 and um, the Merv Griffin show. So everything that we were um, 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 experiencing in pop culture, when the cameras was on us, we could relate to, oh, this is just like the Merv Griffin show. Oh, this is just like they was doing on the Mike Douglas show. You know what I'm saying? So it was easy because all we had to do was be who we were. It was up to everybody else to figure out how to present it. 
So it was easy. We know we never played. We never had to act a certain way. All we had to do was just be who we were and let the cameras do the work. Now, walk this way. That made you know people knew you, but then that just made it yes. blow up. How did that come about? Because were you an Aerosmith fan? Because you said you like classic rock. Were you an Aerosmith guy when you were growing up, or no? No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't an Aerosmith guy. I was more Beatles, Stones, uh, Crosby, Stills, Young and Nash. Harry Chapin, big, big, big part of my life. Jim Croce, bad, bad. Leroy Brown, baddest man. Um, um, who else? Um, um, the Doobie Brothers. One of my favorite songs growing up was Black Water. Aerosmith came about because their song, Walk This Way, that I didn't know was Walk This Way, was the breakbeat that a lot of DJs use. So I had never heard the singing. I just knew, get the album with the toys on the cover and play number four. Because the DJs would scratch out the titles of the albums on the um, on the, the labels of the records, so the rival DJs wouldn't discover who they were. But songs that I did know that was part of the breakbeats, like uh, I was a big Queen fan. You know, another one bites the dust, and we will rock you. Uh, the Rolling Stones, Rushes, Tom Sawyer, uh, the Rolling Stones, definitely a Rolling Stones fan. But we didn't really know nothing about Aerosmith. We just knew the album was Toys in the Attic. And the break, the drum beat on number four is amazing. So how the record came about was we were just going to sample it and rhyme about us. Steal the music and talk about how good we are. That was the main motivation. At the time, we was working with um, our second producer, Rick Rubin. Because Larry Smith, our first producer, the greatest hip-hop producer ever that nobody knows about. Larry Smith produced Run DMC's first two albums by itself. By the time we started on Raising Hell, Larry had left to produce Houdini's groundbreaking album with Friends and Freaks Come Out at Night and Five Minutes of Funk. So we was working with Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin suggested instead of sampling the record and talking about how great we are, he suggested we do the record over the way the band originally done it, which had never been heard. Me and Run was totally against it. Uh, rest in peace, Jam Master J. Jam Master J thought it was the greatest idea. So it took me and run about a week to get convinced to come in and do the band, do the record the way the band originally did it. That was the whole idea. But we didn't know Rick had something else on his mind. At the time, we knew he was coming to the studio to, to recreate the record. He took it a step further, and he said, you know what? I'm going to have the guys who originally did the record do it with Run DMC. That was the game changer, because he brought the two generations together which was an even more powerful presentation. I, I believe if we would have just did it ourselves, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about how great it was. It was a good idea. We, it would be, yo, remember in 1986, Run DMC did Aerosmith's Walk This Way Over? Yeah. But the fact that, yo, remember in 1986, Run DMC hooked up with Aerosmith and did Walk This Way Over, that's the thing that changed the world and music and everything. Now, was there any egos when when you were making that with them, was there any egos? Because you no. guys you guys were top of your game, they were yep. coming down from being on the top of the game, but they were still a right. classic rock band. Any egos, or did you guys get along real well? No, we got along very, very, very well. They were humble enough to come and say, you know, at that point in their life, I always say this: Aerosmith was so far. Rick Rubin gave us the four one one on them, explained who they were the impact they had, how great they were, talked about, you know, where they were at at that period in time. And they were humble enough to say, yo, what do we got to lose? So the joke was Aerosmith could have made a, a record with God, Jesus, and Moses, and nobody would have cared. It took Run DMC to bring Aerosmith back into the grace and place them back where they rightfully should be on their thrones of rock and roll. But in the beginning, Steve was humble, Joe was one of the nicest guy I ever did. Steve did all the talking, and Joe Perry just agreed and was nice and presentable. And it, it, it was a good match because they were surprised at what we were doing with their record. You know what I'm saying? It was like, when are you going to let the lyrics play? It was like, that's the whole idea. We don't need the lyrics. We just need your music. So they thought that was very amusing. But the fact that we was able to take the song they wrote and flip it into a hip-hop presentation. And then the fact that all Steve and Joe Perry had to do was just get on the song and do what they originally did. 
So people say when Steven Tyler took the mic stand in the video and knocked down the wall that was separating us, it didn't just happen in the video. It literally, physically, and happened in the world. So now you guys, you're, you're, you're huger than life. How are you mentally at the time? Because I know you've suffered with depression. I think anyone creative has. How, uh -huh. are you, how are you dealing with, as you were getting so big, were you appreciating it or were you worrying? Like, how do we keep this big? No, right. No, I mean, uh, I didn't get depressed till 1993. So throughout the whole, all the first to go gold, first to go platinum, first to cover Rolling Stone, first with the Adidas deal, uh, for American Bandstand, everything that we was doing that was groundbreaking or historical, I cared nothing about. My desire was, can I make the next song? Can I get on stage? So there was no worries. The worries came later um, until I started listening to, you know, we got to a point where after the Walk This Way thing, we changed everything. So the floodgates was open to create you know, everybody from Public Enemy to Big Daddy Kane to Jay-Z. We did all of that. Tupac and Biggie. All of them said because of what y'all did. Also, on the other hand, too, you had Lint Biscuit, Corn, Rage Against the Machine, Some 41. All of these bands after us, we created this whole rock rap genre that just changed the whole dynamic of what music would be moving ahead. It wasn't until later where, you know, our record label and our management was like, you need to be on MTV. You need to be on the road. You need to be on the radio. You need to sell records and stuff like that. And then Run DMC, we started changing our identity a little bit to where we didn't need to do anything except be who we were and who we are. But it got to a point where Run DMC tried to be Run DMC. If you understand what I'm saying, things work top of the chart of um, tours, movies and all of that run just needs to be run. D needs to be D. J needs to be J. When we started looking at the monster we created <laughs> and then started trying to be like that monster, that's when our problems started happening. But um, my, 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 my personal struggles didn't begin until I started thinking about something's missing from this picture. You know, fortune and fame is fortune and fame. But then I started realizing there's got to be more than life than being the king of rock. Well, now, That's when my mental issue started. Well, now you say there's something missing from this picture. Was that just all of a sudden you woke up one day and you had an epiphany? Yep. Something was missing? Yes. Tell me about that. Tell yep. me what happened. Um, like I said, my career started in 1983. So from 83 to 93, it was, okay, I'm walking everywhere I go. Pioneer legend, pioneer legend, celebrity, pioneer legend, celebrity special, pioneer legend, great, pioneer legend, great. Even within the ups and downs of the careers, even when we wasn't on the charts and wasn't on MTV and wasn't, um, um, you know, number one, nobody in the genre of hip hop could mess with us. I'm talking about Biggie, Pop. Nobody wanted to get on stage with Run DMC. So even when we was the OGs, we were still untouchable. It's just that we wasn't participating in the, the financial rewards of, 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 of our culture. You know what I'm saying? Because record sales went through the roof. P. Diddy and all of these guys showed up pocket big. But during that time, when it came to the essence of what hip-hop is, nobody, and I mean nobody in the game, could touch us. So in 1993, we had what happened with Aerosmith to run DMC. And people tend to forget, what are you talking about? In 1993, Pete Rock, uh, the producer who was from the group Pete Rock and CL Smooth, Pete Rock produced the title song, the title single for our album, Down With The King, in 1993. So Down With The King puts us back on the chart, back on the road, back on the radio, back on MTV with the best song, the best um, video ever. And then we started getting booked for all the shows. And they're putting us on shows to open for a Tribe Called Quest and Naughty by Nature and ZZ Top and Pac and Big and we blowing everybody else. We taking over so bad that people kicking us <laughs> off the tours. Go do your own tour, you old man. Which was like a blessing, you know what I'm saying? But then what started happening was I'm looking at all this, this the renewal of success 
I'm coming back in 93, 10 years later from my start. Now I'm getting the 90s payday, which is way more than what we was getting in the 80s. I'm on MTV. I'm, I'm, I'm in the same venues with all the current new guys. We opening for Pac. We opening for Biggie Smalls. Everybody's praising me again. Here we go again. Pioneer, legend, special, celebrity. Pioneer, legend, listen. So I'm thinking, all right, I'm Daryl McDaniels from Hollis, Queens, New York. Pfeiffer and Banner's my mother and father. Alfred's my brother. You know the infamous rhyme. Son of Pfeiffer, brother of Al. Banner's my mother and runs my pal. It's McDaniels, not McDonald's. These rhymes are Daryl's. Those burgers are Ronald's. I ran down my family tree. My mother, my father, my brother, and me. First to go gold, first to go platinum, first on the cover of Rolling Stone, um, first with the sneaker deals, first with the big tours, the, the best movies, everything. Why is something missing from the picture? So I couldn't fill in this missing piece of my puzzle, which put me into, into the, de the depression. You know, now I'm depressed because I can't figure out what's wrong with me. You know what I'm saying? And that got so uncomfortable. I didn't want to live with this mystery or this emptiness or void. So now I'm thinking about do, committing suicide because I didn't like the way I was feeling. It was something that wasn't right. And everybody's looking at me, you're DMC. You know, lifestyles of the rich and famous, fortune and fame. Why are you feeling this way? And they're telling me I shouldn't feel this way, but I do. So everybody that's telling me you shouldn't feel this way, I alienate them. I get to a place where I'm all alone. I don't want to live no more. Come to find out the missing piece to the whole puzzle was, I was like, all right, if I do kill myself, if I do commit suicide, people know the Run DMC story, but they don't know Daryl. Daryl McDaniels, young little Daryl, who's no different from anybody on the face of the earth. He's the guy that made all of this DMC stuff possible. So plain and simple, I said, I got to leave a book here. You have my music. I'm going to leave a book and tell you who Daryl is. All I knew that um, I was born May 31st, 1964. So long story short, I called up my mom's and I'm like, mom, I know my birthday is May 31st, 1964. To make it more interesting for the reader, I need to know three things. How much did I weigh? What time I was born? What hospital? So she told me those three things. I love you, bye. I'm up the phone. An hour later, she calls back with my father and says, we have something else to tell you. And I'm like, okay, I thought it was gonna be something trivial like, yo, when you was born, there was a power outage in the hospital. We gave birth to you by candlelight. No, they hit me with this. We have something else to tell you. What is it? You was a month old when we brought you home, and you're adopted, but we love you. Bye. Click. So it was 30, I was 35 years old, experiencing a void, which put me into alcoholic suicide, a metaphysical um, suicidal depression, when I found out the missing piece to my identity. I'm the devastating mic controller. I'm the mighty king of rock. I walk this way in my Adidas to tell the world how tricky it is. But the reason the missing piece to my puzzle is the fact that I was adopted. Now, so did, it was strange did, how that came up. Did you ever have an inkling like when you were little did, did you ever think like you know maybe no. i don't i don't i don't look like my parent or i mean what was that no i had the best life ever every record every song that i wrote was about mcdaniels it's mcdaniels christmas time and hollis queens i come from our mother and father i was always family and alfred Pyford and banner so it was no way it hurt for me not to be a, i'm a mcdaniels it hurt for me and my mother to tell me and make me think that I wasn't a McDaniels because I didn't come from their bloodline. So, but there was, I had the best life as a kid. Every school I went to, I went to Catholic school my whole life. Every school I ever went to, my mother and father paid for me to go. It was Christmas time and holiday. Run used to hate it because I was a spoiled little kid. It was Christmas every day for me. You know what I'm saying? So there was no way that I would think that I'm adopted. Me and my brother shared rooms. I had everything that he had. There was nothing that would tell me that I wasn't a McDaniels. But that was the void for what was about to happen in the next chapter of my life. Yeah, when you so you find out you find out that you're adopted and it has to be very shocking. Dramatic. Yeah. Yes. Now now what do you do? Because now do you sit there and help you feed that to get you over your depression? Or does that make you sink into a deeper depression at that it point? Makes me, it made me sink into a deeper depression. So I started drinking. To figure this out. 
I thought Jack Daniels and Jim Bean could help me out. <laughs> I found out they had none of my bread. They wasn't my friends because it was making things worse for me. But at the time, with all these emotions and feelings and everything that I was going through, even though I was the mighty king of rock, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know it was okay to go help. I didn't know how to get help. You know what I'm saying? So I dealt with these feelings the best way that I could possibly deal with them. I started drinking again. Because I forgot to say, before 1993, before Pete Rock saved my career, in 1990, I got diagnosed with acute pancreatitis. So from 1990, I had two choices. When I got discharged from the hospital, the doctor said, son, you have two choices in life. You could drink and die or not drink and live. So I was doing good up until Pete Rock revived my career. <laughs> it brought about all of these emotions that I had never dealt with earlier in my life. And that's the thing that happened. So now that I find out that I'm adopted, that adds on to all the emotions that I was already depressed about. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't know what to do. I, I tried to self-medicate. I turned to the alcohol again, which was me really committing suicide because I'm not supposed to drink because I got pancreatitis. So how do you find your way out of this depression? How what What do you do? Do you go looking for your your birth mother do you sit there and just you know take stock and that you've had a great life how do you pull yourself out well i didn't know what it wasn't i didn't know what to do until i went to rehab and when i went to rehab i found therapy and therapy the therapists don't help you people say why do you go the therapist does two things it lets you repeat stuff that you said to yourself that you didn't listen to or it lets you get real with yourself so that you can finally talk about how you really feel so when i went to rehab to get sober when i went to rehab to get sober it was in rehab where i discovered therapy and it was just little things where um you know when i first found out that i, I was adopted my excuse was oh i'm just drinking to find um to celebrate my newfound um um, um a new a newfound piece of my life and my wife she said motherfucker my wife was really funny she said motherfucker you're drinking because you can't handle the fact emotionally that you just found out you was adopted and that was like i had to shut up to that one i was like shit but i didn't stop drinking i was like, i didn't want to listen to that you know so i'm not listening to anything but it, it wasn't until um i said if I'm going to go solve this mystery and put some closure on this, i got to be of sound mind and body. And everybody, my wife, uh, my manager, Eric, who grew up with me, uh, Kathy from Def Jam Records and Leo Cohen, everybody was trying to tell me to go to rehab, but I didn't listen. So it wasn't until I said, okay, I, what it was is I realized I was really killing myself with, by drinking because I got acute pancreatitis. And and I said, if, if, if I want to, if I want to fill in the void, if I'm going to go find my birth mother, I got to be of sound mind and body. So I got to go deal with what's going on in my head and I got to go stop drinking so I can be strong enough. You know, I don't want to die no more. So during this time, you're going through this traumatic. Are, are you being creative at all, too? Are you bringing this into creativity? Oh, no, no. The, the last thing I wanted to do with rap, rap was over for me. Performing was that was the last. I didn't even care about that. And it's funny that you say that. Um, what 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 goes on internally, what goes on mentally, starts to affect you phys physically. From 1995 all the way to 2004, I completely lost my voice. I completely, what was going on in my head, I was, I don't want to rap no more. What's my purpose? This and that. I'm adopted. There's no sense in living. I'm not, I'm not a McDaniels no more. I don't care about, I don't care about none of that. Who cares about Aerosmith? You know what I mean? Like, I started hating on everything that was part of me because of the mystery and the traumatic revelation. So nothing meant anything because I was so heartbroken that I'm not a McDaniels. So what's the sense of living? So the way I was thinking mentally started to affect me physically. And my voice completely left. And when my voice completely left, that kind of really made me want to commit suicide more because now I can't do the thing that I thought I was only put here to do. But the King of Rock thing was just the setup for what I was really put here to do. So now, when do you start doing that? When does when do you rally back and say, uh, "I'm gonna, I'm, 
you know, I know because I know you speak to school people and you yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, when do you decide to sit there and put your it takes a lot for someone to sit there and go, OK, I'm going to put I'm a I'm a I'm an icon. I'm a celebrity. I got to right. say I've gone through depression. I've been suicidal. I'm adopted. When do you decide to do that and just come out and say, here's the deal, man. It's OK. Well, when I got out of rehab, I get out of rehab. People haven't people haven't seen me. Um, I got clean and sober in 2004. So during that period of time, um, people haven't seen me anywhere. They saw Run. Was Run at his reality show. You know, he was on TV every minute. And people was wondering, you know, why DMC ain't on Run's TV show? You know, he had 10 years of his TV show. And I never showed up once. So I get out of rehab. And people got to understand, they thought something was wrong with me and Run. No, the reason why me and Run ain't doing anything is because your Master J got shot and killed. See, you forgot when I was going through all of this suppression adoption thing, it didn't end there. Jam Master J gets shot and killed, which was another signal for me, it's over. You know what I'm saying? Showbiz is over. You know what I'm saying? So the, 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 the point, the revelation of what goes on is I get out of rehab and I'm, Everywhere I went, the supermarket, 7-Eleven, the airport, uh, the gym, people would come up to me and say, Dave, where you been? Why you ain't on Run's house? And it's a funny thing. It kind of was the answer to the question, why you ain't in Run's house? I wasn't on Run's house because I was an alcoholic, suicidal, metaphysical wreck. I just got out of rehab and therapy. I was going to kill myself. And immediately, all the celebrity, pioneer, legend, celebrity special would leave out the door. And the people would say, what? You? And I wasn't, hip-hop taught me to keep it real. Tell your truth. So I've always told you, Christmas time at Hollis, Queens, son of Vifred, I'm the king of rock, St. John's University. I realized me, I had more power talking about the bad things I went to. was way more powerful for me than talking about how good I am on a mic. I would say, I just got a rehab. I'm in therapy now. I was suicidal. I'm an alcoholic. I had pancreatitis. 150% of the time, people would do two things. They would go, oh, my God, D, I've never told anybody this. They would even say, me too? Or if it wasn't this, oh, my God, D, I've never told anybody this, but my mother, my wife, my brother, my sister. Every time I would say, yo, I was vulnerable, weak, suicidal, alcoholic, owner of OCD. I would admit everything that was wrong with me. And everybody that I said to would say me too, or they knew someone else who was going through. So it, it was almost kind of like um, the superheroes in the comic books that I grew up worshiping. The reason why I was so much in the comic book, think about it. Most superheroes are adopted or they have a missing parent thing. Superman from another place. Peter Parker lost his parents, was raised by Aunt May. Batman lost his parents. Most of these superheroes have that with them. And there's a point in their life where they get told, um, Clark, come here. We need to tell you something. You're really not one of us. You're from somewhere else, but you have a mission in the perfect. You know what I'm saying? But I, um, I realized that something special was going on when I would tell people the struggles I was going through. So let's bring you up to modern day. You've helped so many yeah. people. And I, I was watching your video for Ghetto Metal. Tell me about oh, that because that rocks. It rocks. Now, how do you, how do you find a band yeah, to play yeah. with you? I mean, how did, how did you come up with that sound? Well, the sound is actually the sound that I used to steal before I was allowed <laughs> to enter the studio. Oh, Van Halen, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith, The Rolling Stones, Queen and Rush, for example. That sound, that classic rock sound, is the same sound that was on the records in the DJ's crates when we did block parties and hip-hop parties and park parties in New York City. Along with James Brown, along with all the disco, when disco died, you know that saying, another man's garbage is another, another man's trash is another man's treasure? Remember when everybody said disco sucks and hated on discos, we took all those records and started rhyming over the breakbeats. So the Ghetto Metal basically is me paying, um, me celebrating and paying homage to 
the records that we used to sample that inspired us to want to do rock box king of rock and walk this way it's kind of like me going full circle now i started with comic books discovered rock and roll got into the hip-hop to do what the rock and roll people were doing and then five years ago i started my own comic book company so now as i move forward um i'm maturing right now um I got to let people know the reason why we did Rockbox, which led to us doing King of Rock, which then led to us doing Walk This Way, is because of all the names and the sound that's on this ghetto metal record. So it's like taking something that was considered old and what they used to do and doing it better in a new age of music to let people know nothing beats this. It's like when we started this conversation out, this is some really good sounding music. And I can tell my story over it. You know what I'm saying? It's also done to inspire those kids. Don't be, everybody don't need to be a rapper. If you listen on a record, it's King DMC. I'm the real rock star. And I love that kid with the rock guitar. You got these rappers nowadays saying that they rock stars and stuff like that. No, you might be living a rock star life. You got cars, you got money, you're getting high on drugs. You know, your OD and everything that's wrong with our entertainment and our music cultures right now, the the, um, the harmful behaviors are being celebrated. So now that I'm clean and sober, I can do what I started in 1983. And if you thought that it was powerful when I walked this way with Aerosmith, you have no idea where it's about to go. But it all started with listening to Van Halen. It's all started with listening to Jimi Hendrix. It's all started, you know, just loving music itself as an artistic art form to be an experience. So I was like, wow, you know, Run DMC did Rock Boxing, got on MTV, hooked up with Larry Bud Melman, did The King of Rock, which was about a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They was denying Run DMC entrance into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum in 85 that didn't even exist yet. <laughs> Because it didn't start till 86. So I'm realizing people tend not to go back to the essence. Because they'll let somebody say, oh, that's how they used to do it. Me doing what I did when I was 15 years old is not old. Because it's brand new to this generation. Because nobody can do it. I got one more question. What is the future of Daryl? What What's next? You've done comic books. You've done kids books. You've done rock and roll. You've done rap. You've been on MTV, Rolling Stone. You've done all that. You you know you spoke. You've made a difference in people's lives with, that are dep- depressed and suicidal. Right. What What's next for you? Uh, my next, my next, my next, um, my next realm to conquer, or my next dimension to conquer, is definitely TV and film. That's what's next to me. Um, the, 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 the book, the, the children's book out now, Daryl's Dream, is the first book in a series of books dealing with issues and obstacles and adversity young people go through. We're already in talks about the animated series for Daryl's Dream. And then I want to do um, TV and I want to do film. That's the next thing for me. I've, I've completed the first draft of uh, my life story to turn it into a movie, a motion picture. So film and TV is definitely next. You know, I've done the music, I've done the videos, I've done, you know, the the Crush Groove movies and Toughening Levers and stuff like that. I've I've done, there's definitely going to be more books and more music. The children's books is really something special to me because what I want to do with the children's book is deal with things like fear, confusion, um, anxiety and being afraid now so that these kids when they get my age and when they grow up they already are in you know already navigating those emotions and feelings because if we don't address them now when the kids are younger they're going to grow up like me and it's going to manifest itself later on in their lives so the next frontier for me is definitely film and tv well, that's awesome i want to i want to thank you for coming on give me a give me a uh, one of your Lyrics and rhymes about Cooper talk. I, I want I want that real quick. With Aerosmith, I used to take a walk, and you could tell by the way. With Aerosmith, I took a walk. 
Now I'm sitting here on Cooper Talk. We come together. We like to speak. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be weak. Do not be afraid to be who you are and be like DMC. You can end up a star. Cooper Talk, take the walk, and anything messed up, it's not your fault. All right. Well, I want to shout out to your people. Uh, people, go, go, go check out Daryl's book. Go go get it for your kids, man. You know, he has such an important message to us. Daryl's dream. Go listen to DMC's music. Run DMC was a great band. Listen to new DMC ghetto metal. Um, listen to my show, people. You can find over yes. 890 episodes on my website, uh, coopertalk.net. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.